God, our Father, we are grateful, Lord, that you have given us this opportunity to gather and to worship you this morning by the hearing of your word. We pray, God, for open hearts, Lord, that we might receive your word as it is in truth, the word of God, even as your blessed and holy Thessalonian church did. God, we pray that you would uh, help us to uh, take the matters of your word seriously. God, that we would consider it the very word of God to us, each and every one of us as an individual. God, that we are here by divine appointment, that you might speak to us and teach us your truth. We thank you for the privilege and the freedom that we have to gather in this place and to freely proclaim your word without fear of persecution or harm. We ask, God, that you would help us not to count this uh, for granted, but that, Lord, we would see it as it is in truth, a tremendous privilege and freedom that we have here in America. And help us, God, to take advantage of the opportunity that we have to freely proclaim your word. We thank you. Uh, for all that you're doing in us, in our lives, in our families, in our marriages, God, in our church. We honor you and we praise you and we bless you. We rejoice in all that you have done for us in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Okay. Well, I sure am excited about another year of Sunday school. I've been off for the summer. And it uh, feels a little awkward to try to get back into the swing of things. But uh, I have been studying rather profusely <laughs> for the last month and a half. And uh, as time has gotten closer, I have um, been focusing more and more on the text. And uh, I have come to learn that there is a lot to learn about the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And uh, now I understand why. It is a great privilege to be here and to, uh, to go through these uh, books of Scripture with you. And uh, if you will, today is going to be mostly an introduction. I don't think we'll make it into the text because there is a lot of background on the Thessalonian church given in the book of Acts. And if you will, it kind of gives you an understanding of what these apostles were facing when they went out to evangelize the Roman world. It was quite an ordeal. And uh, even in the Thessalonian church, uh, we're going to see tremendous opposition to the gospel and at the same time, tremendous success of the gospel. And uh, so it's a really, really interesting thing. Uh, As we go through the course of of, uh, this book, we're going to cover some very remarkable topics. And um, this is actually arguably the first Pauline epistle that is uh, in, in the canon of Scripture. So in other words, of all the letters Paul wrote that are in the Bible, this is the first one, the earliest one. And uh, some argue that maybe Galatians might precede it, but uh, that's not actually the dominant view. The dominant view is that this is actually the earlier letter. Um, but uh, with that, let's dive off into here. We'll be starting on page 1. And uh, moving forward, and just for a moment here, we'll talk about the author of the letter, who is Paul the Apostle to the Gentiles, a Jew from the tribe of Benjamin and a Pharisee who learned under the teaching of Gamaliel. 
he was converted by Christ on the road to Damascus and made an apostle by direct appointment of the Lord Jesus Christ. <clears throat> Paul was further instructed by direct revelation of Christ himself, that reference coming from Galatians 1.12. And, of course, we just recently had a sermon from Pastor Tim on <clears throat> Paul's apostleship uh, from the first chapter of the book of Galatians. Paul is also the author of 13 New Testament books. So Paul has actually written most of the New Testament. Of course, we're all very familiar with the Apostle Paul. Amen? I hope so. If not, we're going to get familiar with him rather quickly. Uh, he is quite, quite a man. And um, when he writes these letters, we get a glimpse into his heart and into his mind. Amen? Not to mention into all the trouble that he causes when he turns the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. So uh, in, in talking about the background of this letter to the Thessalonians, let's, let's do that here for a minute. So Thessalonica uh, was a large and busy city with a population of over 200,000 people. So uh, during the time of the writing of the letter, the population of Thessalonica was a minimum of 200,000 people. And I've drawn just a little map here. You might want to look at your map sometime in the back of your Bible if you have one. That shows Thessalonica here at the very top of the Aegean Sea. Okay? And if you will, it was a port city. So it was right on a port. Not only that, it was a port city with a river and therefore somewhat of a natural harbor. So because of that, it was a center for trade, okay? And as a matter of fact, it was located um, at the crossroads of a major trade route heading north called the Ignatian Way. So not only was uh, it a seaport, which allowed these ships to come in, and, and, and therefore they would have a lot of commerce, but it was, it was located on this trade route, that was uh, would head over, of course, down this way was Athens. But this Ignatian Way trade route was one that headed off up to the north. And uh, because of that, it wasn't only a route by sea, but it was a route by land. And so, if you will, it became the principal city in this region. So Thessalonica is actually the capital of this whole region, which is called Macedonia. Okay, so it kind of gives you an idea that this is a very important city. Not only is it a very important city, but it's, it's a, it's a, it's the reason for its importance is because there's a lot of travelers that are coming in and out, and there's a lot of business that gets done there. Therefore, the, it's a, the government there is very important. And uh, this was one of the, what they called the free Roman cities. And what that meant was they were allowed to have their own city government there, uh, independent of the uh, actual Roman government itself, even though they were in subjection to the Roman authorities. Being one of these free cities, they were given the ability to have certain freedoms that not all cities had. And so, if you will, uh, it's a, a very busy, bustling city. Being the largest city in Macedonia, its people were quite diverse and included both Greeks and Romans, as well as many transient types, such as sailors and travelers and various types of trade people. So 
because this was a trade city, which had uh, access both to trade routes on, on the land and trade route by the sea, they would have all kinds of different people here. They would have people that would speak many different languages. They had people that came from Egypt, people that came from Tarshish, which were the, the far uh, western uh, uh, lands and islands. They had people that came from, from nearly everywhere and, and traveled here. And so, if you will, it was a very diverse city with a very diverse influence of all different kinds of people, much like the multicultural culture that we find ourselves with here in America. The people were very diverse, and because of that, the culture was diverse, the religion was diverse, okay? And so it was a very, very interesting uh, city. From a religious perspective, having many diverse peoples, there was a pluralistic religious environment. And so what do we mean by that? Well, the coexistence of many religions. If you will, thinking about the religious landscape of Thessalonica, there were all different kinds of religious people there with various different kinds of religious views, much like what post-Christian America has become. Are you with me? And so, if you will, there is a pluralistic environment. And along with that, pluralism is, of course, everyone's expected tolerance, right? Of course, people who preach tolerance are, are usually very tolerant until you don't agree with them, and then they're no longer tolerant, right? Well, so it was also in Thessalonica, okay? There was a very diverse religious uh, group of, of people there, many different kinds of religions, many different kinds of cults, okay? Uh, the Greeks alone had hundreds and hundreds of different kinds of cults which were based on the worship of very uh, specific gods. And, and of course, then, then those would mix and they would have cults that would worship many different kinds of many different gods. And so it was a very uh, pluralistic kind of, of a culture. On top of that, <clears throat> uh, the people, uh, the, the culture of the people was not just Greek, but it was also Roman, because Roman rule had extended, of course, as far as uh, Macedonia, and uh, this area was under Roman rule, even though the the uh, the native peoples there were Greeks. Well, not only that, but because of the transient peoples that were traveling through here on a regular basis their religious influence would also come and enter the city, okay? So, having both Greeks and Romans, there would have been many gods and pagan deities that were worshipped. This was indicated by Paul's statement in 1 Thessalonians 1.9 that the Christian believers had turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. And so when Paul identifies the Thessalonian believers... He says that they turn to God from idols. And if you will, he describes what the common religious pluralistic environment was like. It was, an, it was a, a religion that was dominated by the worship of idols, which we would call paganism or pagan idolatry. Okay, So that they were actually worshiping these man-made gods and be, because of that had all different various forms of 
perverted kinds of worship, which we will talk about at length and which you will see very present in the text, uh, how that God truly set these people free. Both archaeological and inscriptional evidence also reveals the popularity of various mystery religions dedicated to such Greco-Roman and Egyptian deities as Dionysus, Serapis, Isis, Aphrodite, Demeter, Zeus, and Asclepius. The most important deity in Thessalonica, however, was Kabiris, the patron god of the city. This Kabiris figure was a martyred hero, murdered by his two brothers and expected to return to help the oppressed poor in general and the citizens of Thessalonica in particular. So if you will, there was much of the popular Greek uh, god and goddess worship that went on here. And many times these represented their own cult in and of themselves, which had large followings of Greek people. And so, and of course, as I mentioned, sometimes they were mingled with, with other uh, uh, Greek pagan religions. And uh, it was just a, a very diverse um, religious environment there in the city of Thessalonica. And because of this uh, transient idea where people are coming in and out, there was also a significant Jewish population as the city had its own synagogue. Now, many of the Greek cities in Paul's time and in Paul's missionary journeys did not actually have their own synagogue. Normally, it was when there was a larger city that had a, a fairly large Jewish influence where there was a synagogue. Well, of course, the one in Thessalonica was very large and very influential in Judaism at this time. The size and influence of this synagogue is also indicated in the book of Acts, chapter 17, verse 4, where there Luke is writing and he says of that, that place, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So there, the influence of this Jewish synagogue was so prolific that uh, Luke describes it as having a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks, okay? So that the Gentile populations are actually uh, converted to Judaism as well. And, uh, of course, that is a reference to male figures, which is why he also adds, and a number of the leading women. In other words, the prominent people in the community. There was a number of prominent Greek families who had converted to Judaism and were in the synagogue. Now, a God-fearing Greek was typically a Gentile convert to Judaism that was uncircumcised. Because there were a great number of these, the influence of this synagogue was obviously pervasive. It was this synagogue that Paul entered upon his arrival in Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. The book of Acts chapter 17 records Paul's visit to Thessalonica and the planting of the church there. Now, there is this passage in Acts chapter 17 verses 1 through 15, which basically is a little chronology of Paul's second missionary journey taking them um, uh, on their journey on into Thessalonica and it records the events that happened there. And there they left from Thessalonica and they traveled over to Berea, which is actually about right here. 
Everybody knows about Berea, right? How come? Because of the noble Bereans. And they were noble why? Right. Because they had their nose in the Bible. Amen? So, okay. So after uh, Paul uh, is in Thessalonica, he travels on to Berea. And the Jews in Thessalonica were so angry, they chased him there and uh, ran him out of Berea also. And then he wound up in Athens thereafter. But if you will, I'm going to be reading from Acts chapter 17. And we're going to get a little bit of background on what exactly happened with the Thessalonian church, starting in verse 1. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So as it was Paul's custom, as he would come through these cities, if there were a synagogue, he would go there and immediately begin to preach from the Old Testament scriptures. And from the Old Testament scriptures, which Paul was a master of, he would begin to preach Jesus from the Old Testament, explaining that the Jesus whom he was preaching was the Messiah the anointed one of God who was to come into the world. He would preach Jesus as the Christ using Old Testament scripture text for that purpose. Well, it wouldn't take long before those Jews were were going to be polarized. Either they were going to receive the message that Paul was preaching and therefore become followers of this Messiah, who is Jesus the Christ, or they were not going to be willing to, Uh, to to be subject to this new covenant, if you will, that Paul was teaching, and then they would begin to oppose what Paul had to say. And it's uh, very exciting as you read through the book of Acts to see how these fireworks, when they went off, uh, what it actually looked like. But much of the time it wound up with a tremendous and expected opposition to the Apostle Paul, which uh, usually looked like them trying to kill him. And, um, you, you know, you understand Jews are very zealous for their religion, just like most people are. Most, you know, we're very religious. Mankind is very religious, right? And we get very zealous in our religion. Well, the Jews, of course, are, are, uh, are, are very zealous for their religion. And so when this uh, uh, master of the Jewish religion and master of the Jewish scriptures would come in and begin to preach this new covenant and this uh, 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 message of the resurrection of the dead and bring much new revelation that came through the gospel of our Lord Jesus, right? Uh, it it uh, very quickly uh, began to cause them to ask a lot of questions about what they believed and who they were. And so usually in that struggle, what would happen was a group of Christians would emerge from those groups within the synagogues, and this is exactly what happened in Thessalonica. And so the first Thessalonian converts were evangelized and discipled for a very short period of time by Paul. Now notice what it says there in Acts chapter 17, 
in verse 2. It says, according to Paul's custom, that is what he normally regularly did, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. So Paul goes into the synagogue on three successive Sabbaths, three weeks in a row, three Saturdays in a row. He shows up on the Jewish holy day and there is reasoning with them from the scriptures and preaching Jesus as the Christ. As it says in verse 3, he was explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying, this Jesus who I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. Okay, so while he's in Thessalonica, for three weeks he went into the synagogue and he preached Jesus as the Christ from the Old Testament. The result of that is recorded in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. So here, Paul has converts. Paul has um, uh, three kinds of converts that are named here in this verse. Some of them, that is, the Jews. Some of the Jews. Okay? And then he says, along with a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks. So who were his converts? Some of the Jews and a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks. Now, these were these uh, um, Hellenistic Greek people who had converted to Judaism but were not circumcised. Okay, they and, and in that day and time, they called them God-fearing Greeks. Okay, and it, then it also names there a number of the leading women. Okay, and of course, when it when it says leading women, what it's talking about is prominent women within the city and within the culture. Okay, so um, these converts then are the result of Paul's preaching ministry while he was in the synagogue preaching Jesus. Most scholars believe they actually spent more than three weeks there, but that they only spent three weeks reasoning in the synagogue. Okay, now. Some would argue that Paul was only there for three weeks and then he left, okay? Others have the position that he was only three weeks reasoning in the synagogue and then there was an additional time that he spent making disciples as was Paul's custom also. And uh, then it was some time after that that the opposition was stirred up and they ran him out of town. Uh, However, the scripture text says only what we just read about how long Paul was there. It says it reasoned in the synagogue for three weeks. That doesn't necessarily tell us he was there longer or if he was really only there for three short weeks, okay? But you have to consider um, the body of knowledge that the Thessalonian church had, which we learn from these two letters, because Paul is writing to address specific practical instructions to the church on various topical issues, we kind of learn that they really had a, a quite comprehensive knowledge of the faith, but they had some things that they were still trying to understand and work out so that when Paul writes his letters, he's addressing those issues and those matters. So what I'm saying is, is that the Thessalonian church actually had quite an extensive knowledge of the faith and what it was. And, and uh, um, if you will, three weeks is a very short time to establish that. However, <laughs> Paul was also a master disciple maker, amen? 
And so we're assuming that Paul did cover much of the Christian faith and that they did have a very good education from Paul in a very short period of time. Regardless of how long he was there, okay, Paul did an excellent job of educating this church and explaining to them what the faith was all about. You have to remember, in this Thessalonian church, and this itself being the first uh, letter, Pauline letter, okay, they did not have a New Testament, okay? Now, it is possible that they had some gospel accounts by then, but um, the issue is is that, you know, we, we have this tremendous... <laughs> revelation of God that's been recorded for us and, and, and the benefit of prophets and wise men studying it for the last 2,000 years, right? So if I want to go in here and look at my Bible and find out what a God-fearing Greek is, I just look down here in the study notes and it says, well, a God-fearing Greek is a, a Hellenistic Greek who uh, hasn't been circumcised, right? And I have all the benefit of not only recorded revelation of the New Testament scriptures, right, but the benefit of many, many, many hundreds of years of uh, doctrinal refinement by the church that helps me come to the understanding that I have and toss on my coffee table every Sunday when I get home from church, right? Well, they didn't have that benefit, okay? Here's what they had. They had Paul come through the synagogue, preach Jesus is the Christ, have this amazing regeneration experience being born again by the Holy Spirit of God and being called out of this Judaism and of this dark, idolatrous culture, right, to become this little fledgling church. And then, because of such great opposition, right, they actually they actually dragged these Christians uh, before the city uh, officials and uh, and, and in, in so doing, looking for Paul, but Paul kind of sneaks around the backside. He's been down this street before, you see. And, uh, and they run Paul out of town, right? And here is this young fledgling church left to try and thrive in the midst of this opposition, right? And, and uh, with no Paul or Timothy, <laughs> right, or Silas left behind, to help them and teach them and instruct them and encourage them, okay? And so that's what they were facing. Well, uh, regardless, the church was born and was very young when Paul met with his expected opposition. With false accusations and jealous brutality, the angry Jews sought for Paul but couldn't find him. Acts chapter 17, verses 5 and following. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. And when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have upset the world have come here also. And Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. And so, if you will, uh, very remarkable what happened here. <clears throat> it says here that they, um, the Jews became jealous. They became jealous. Now, think about what's happened here. Paul has come into this city. 
He's gone into the synagogue. He's began preaching this Jesus is the Christ, the very fulfillment of the Jewish religion. Right? He's coming in here and preaching this message. He wins these converts who are described here as some Jews and a great multitude of God-fearing Greeks and also leading women, prominent people in the culture, are turned away from their Judaism to believe this new way of Jesus. Okay? And so the scripture says that the Jews became jealous. They were jealous for these converts. They were jealous for these Christians who were leaving their flock. Okay? And so this is what how it describes what happened. It says they became jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace. Now, how many of you know what a wicked man from the marketplace is? <laughs> you get the idea, right? Today we might call them hoods, hoodlums, right? Gangsters. <laughs> I won't go there. The idea is wicked men from the marketplace. Right? So the Jews get jealous. So what do they do? They go get some wicked men. What do you suppose they had in mind? Yeah. Violence. Violence is what they had in mind. Now, how do you garner wicked men from the marketplace for violence? Well, that's real simple. Money. Right? With a little bit of money, you got a you got a nice mob. And you can work somebody over good. Right? Which is what they sought to do. And so this is what it goes on to say. They taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar, and coming upon the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. So they went to the house of Jason with this mob by which they're creating an uproar. You understand, back in that day and time, this was a big deal, man. If you got a bunch of guys together with sticks and you got them all together and started yelling and marching down the street, this was a big deal that was going on, right? So they marched all the way to Jason's house, which, okay, so you have all these Jews from the synagogue with this mob and this uproar, and they come knocking on Jason's door, right? Well, they knew that Jason had welcomed uh, Paul and Silas and Timothy, and uh, obviously they must have been meeting as a church there, right? And so they came there looking for Paul and looking for Silas and looking for Timothy. And they didn't find them there, but they, this is what they came for. They came to bring them out to the people. They wanted to uh, uh, roll them. Right on out of the city, right? They didn't like this thing that was happening at all. But it says here in verse 6 that they did not find them. They did not find them. So what did they do instead? They began dragging Jason and some of the brethren before the city's authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. Okay, so here's what they did. They went to Jason's house. They didn't find Paul and Silas and Timothy. Instead, they grabbed those brand new baby Christians that were there. 
and they drug them from their house to the city authorities, right? And then they laid these accusations against them. Look what they said. These men who have upset the world <clears throat> have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the de- decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now that sentence right there is full of lies. Amen? The first thing is the apostles didn't upset the world. They were preaching Jesus, the king of peace, and telling men they ought to love one another. Sounds like a very upsetting message, doesn't it? (laughs) This is the interesting thing about Christian persecution. You know, the world is so wickedly violent against Christians. But think about the Christian message. Do we preach such a thing that should garner such violence? Are you with me? Why is it that Christians are hated so? Well, because they hate Christ. That's why. Jesus warned us of that very thing, didn't he? Well, here we see these brand new baby Christians being drugged before the city authorities. And there they are laying these lying accusations against them that they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. You know, those Christians, those law-breaking citizens, which is what Christians are known for, right? (laughs) Wrong, right? Of course, in the body of Christian teaching, we're taught that we're to submit ourselves to the governing authorities, right? And that we're to live, even in this letter, a peaceful and a quiet life as we work hard so that we won't be in need and we have something to share with others. Amen? That's how we act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Right? And again, it's just one lying accusation after another, which is exactly what happened to our Lord when they brought him before the authorities there. Right? Of course, they had nothing to accuse him of, so they made up every story they could think of. Right? As a matter of fact, the, 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 the Roman uh, guy there, Pilate, he wasn't convinced by anybody's arguments. Right? So much so that he washed his hands. He says, I'm washing my hands of this man's guilt. Amen. There's a bunch of lying accusations. And this is what Jesus told us would happen to us when we began to testify of his name. Amen. So much so that there will come a day in time, according to Matthew chapter 24, right? That then you will be handed over and persecuted and killed and hated by all nations because of my name. Right? And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate one another. And because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. Amen? And so it is. The destiny of Christians is the same as her Lord. To the cross we go. Amen? And so we see it right here. Man, these guys aren't Christians three weeks or some short time after that. And here they are drugged before the city authorities with no Paul and Silas and Timothy to defend them. Right? So what do they do? Well, they submit. They surrender. They say, okay, you know, we'll give a pledge, which is what they asked them to do. 
It says they stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and others, they released them. And it doesn't tell us the nature of the pledge, but I'm assuming it is. You're not to house these troublemakers anymore, right? Of course, that's just conjecture, and so I offer that as just conjecture. (laughs) And so Paul and Silas fled the city and went on their way to the next God-ordained destination to preach the gospel. After being forced to leave Thessalonica, they traveled to Berea, where in just a short time the angry Jews from Thessalonica pursued them all the way to Berea to seek them out and cause them trouble. So here's this picture. You understand that the synagogue in Thessalonica is a big synagogue. It's like going to the, the biggest Jewish church in the whole region. Okay? And if, if your ministry is successful there and calling men out, well, you've done quite a deed there, right? And so these guys are hacked. They're hacked good. So much so, they chase Paul and Silas 50 miles away. That's how far it is from Thessalonica to Berea. 50 miles away. And let me tell you, in that day, you don't hop in your 15-passenger van <laughs> and drive to Santa Fe in an hour. doesn't work like that. 50 miles, man, that's, that's quite a ways to go, right? And, and so they're angry. They're jealous, and they're angry. And um, so they begin to pursue them. But uh, this is what's so very interesting, right? Here's Paul. You know, of course, this happened to him all along the way. But you know, here he comes. He goes into the synagogue. He preaches until what? Until he gets the boot, right? And there he, then, you know, then he's on to this place, and then he's on to that place, right? And, you, you know, as long as I let him stay, man, he'll sit there and preach and teach and make disciples until a cow's come on, right? But when they start threatening blood, well, just like Jesus said, when you're persecuted in one place, flee to another, right? So this is what he did. Well, when he left Thessalonica, he went to Berea, and look what it says about what Paul did. And the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, what? They went into the synagogue of the Jews. (laughs) Now, Paul's just a glutton for punishment, right? No. Paul loves Jesus more than his own life. Amen? Would that I had that kind of courage and conviction. You know, not, not just to go out into a, a, a pluralistic culture and preach Jesus on the street corner, but to go into a Jewish synagogue and reason from their scriptures that Jesus is the Christ. Man, that's courage. Amen? Amen. Especially when you know what's about to happen. <laughs> you know it's only a matter of time before they start catching on to what you're saying, right? And... Uh, Nevertheless, this is what the scripture says. They went into the synagogue of the Jews. Verse 11. Now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. So now these Jews in the, in the synagogue in Berea, the Bible says, were more noble-minded because... They sought the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. They were actually holding Paul to his word. They went away from Paul's sermon with their Old Testament scriptures, and man, they dug through those things to make sure what he was saying was right. 
because of that, they're recorded in the Bible as being more noble-minded. They actually dug into the scripture to see if what the preacher was saying was true. And that's what a noble Bible student is. Amen? Wants to know if the word of God stacks up to the message that's being preached. Amen? We would uh, do good to be noble. Would we not? Well, it goes on. Many of them therefore believed. They, they, they looked at what Paul said. They examined the scripture. It says they therefore believed. Now what's the therefore? Therefore. points to what just happened. They went home, they dug in their Bible, they saw that what Paul said was true, and the result was faith in the Christ whom Paul was preaching. Because they could see clearly in the Old Testament that this Jesus was in fact the the Messiah who was to come. Many of them therefore believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. Okay, now here again. Now we're in Berea. Now we have prominent people studying their Bible and saying, you know what? This Jesus, he is the Christ. And again, these were people who were converted while in the synagogue. Jewish converts. Okay? But when the Jews of Thessalonica... Now, we're not talking about the Jews in Berea. What just happened in Berea is Paul and Silas came in there. They started preaching Jesus and people got saved. Okay, now it says that Jews from Thessalonica, 50 miles away, the same guys that ran them out of the city, found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea. So as soon as they heard the message, right, Paul comes over here. We don't know exactly how long it is. He's preaching. As soon as he hears, they've gone from here to there, right, and now they're preaching this thing. These guys are stirred up again, all right? They found out that the word of God had been proclaimed by Paul and Berea. Also, they came there likewise, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Imagine what this looks like. Yeah, this this group of guys comes from Thessalonica, comes into Berea. It says they agitated and stirred up the crowds. They made a big deal out of this thing, right? And it's amazing, it's amazing to me that they're actually allowed to do this in the Roman culture, which was a very uh, orderly culture. I mean, you, you, you didn't mess around with the Roman authorities, man. You know, they, they were in control. And if, if you were out of order, if you were breaking Roman law, which, which was a very orderly law, they didn't put up with criminals, they didn't put up with, with agitators, and so on and so forth, Okay. And, and nevertheless, this is the very thing these religious Jews are doing. They're agitating and stirring up the people, creating a riot, st- going with a mob <laughs> of wicked men and agitating and stirring up the crowds. It's amazing what they did when they chased these uh, Christians. And immediately the brethren sent Paul out to go as far as the sea and Silas and Timothy remained there. So as soon as this crowd from Thessalonica got there and started this agitation, it says immediately they took Paul. They took Paul over here. And they put him on a boat. <laughs> they said, Paul, hey, man, these guys came 50 miles after you. It's time for you to get on your horse and leave this place, right? So that's exactly what, what happened. <clears throat> 
But it says that Silas and Timothy remained there. So you kind of get the idea also that Paul is the key figure. Paul is the very zealous preacher, right? And Silas and Timothy are there as his servants and his fellow disciple makers. And I mean, you can imagine what it must be like when you have a great multitude of Jews that are being converted. Uh, The help that must be needed in ministry just to try and teach and instruct those people and make disciples, right? Amazing thing going on here. This is an amazing missions trip right here, let me tell you. Um, But uh, if, if you will, Silas and Timothy were allowed to remain there without threat of harm, apparently. Um, as long as those Jews knew Paul was on that boat, they were, they were probably pretty happy. <laughs> they didn't want him around no more, right? And so now those who uh, conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. And so Paul comes down here and gets on a boat headed for Athens, Okay. And so Paul was forced again to move on to yet another destination and wound up in Athens. It was there, of course, where he preached his famous sermon on Mars Hill. Now, you, re- you recall the sermon in, in Acts chapter 17 where Paul is preaching in the, in the Areopagus uh, to the guys who all they want to do is hear something new, right? And we have this famous Mars Hill sermon that was preached there. So that was happening in Athens, Okay. So right after this whole set of circumstances up here in Thessalonica and Berea, he gets on a boat, he heads to Athens. That's, that's the next thing that happens in the accounts in the book of Acts. Okay? So <clears throat> now, as a result of this Jewish opposition to Paul, Silas, and the new Christians at Thessalonica, the fledgling church found themselves as the object of much persecution in Thessalonica. So you have to think about what's going on here. These people have been called out of this Jewish synagogue, right, and this Jewish religion to become these Christians. And as a, as a, as a, uh, as a part of learning the Christian religion, they're taught to do what? To evangelize, to proselytize, right? So here they come out of this Jew, Judaism, and here they are as a fledgling church left behind to grow and to prosper on their own. Well, uh, it's amazing what actually happened with the Thessalonians. In fact, the entire chapter one of the book of First Thessalonians is Paul's commendation and praise to them for their amazing evangelistic efforts and their amazing testimony as a faithful and steadfast church. And that is very remarkable based on the circumstances of what they're actually facing. They've, Paul's come in here. They've made these, this whole converts of this church in such a very short period of time. Then there's this great opposition to what has happened. Paul and Silas and Timothy get run off, and this church is left behind in this hostile environment as a brand-new baby church. I mean, imagine when you were a Christian for three weeks. Imagine what what it must have been like to try to learn and grow in your faith in in that kind of environment, okay? But nevertheless, the Lord Jesus is the good shepherd, amen? And of all that the Father has given me, I shall lose none but raise them up at the last day, amen? And the Lord was with them, as we shall see. Nevertheless, 
this fledgling church found themselves as the object of much persecution, nevertheless, God's elect people were called out of the dark idolatry of this pagan city, and the very young and holy church was left to prosper in the face of no small opposition, upheld by the keeping power of God and shepherded by the Lord Jesus Christ. It was because of Paul's separation from the young church that he left with such great concern for them. Such is the occasion of Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. Okay, now, having all that background, understand this thing. When Paul writes to the Thessalonians, number one, it's relatively soon after he has left them, okay? But he has this tremendous concern for the church. Why? Well, you can understand why. There's this brand new baby Christian church that he just... Just, and then, then he left them in the midst of all these vipers. Are you with me? And so as Paul, I mean, think about it. Paul, Paul's on his, uh, on his donkey or he's walking like a crazy man all the way from Thessalonica to Berea. And, uh, you know, step after step, imagine what's going through Paul's mind. You know, he's thinking about people. You know, <laughs> He's thinking about people that were converted and believed. And he's thinking, I'm being drug away. I'm being detached like my my brand new baby children. You just stole them out of my arms. Right? And he's being run off by angry men, fleeing for his very life. And he's leaving this church behind. And his heart is filled with compassion for these people. His heart is filled with concern. His heart is filled with longing to see them and to encourage them in their faith and strengthen them and build them up in their faith so that the enemy won't come and snatch the seed of the word of God from their hearts. You with me? That is the occasion of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. When he writes back, he's wanting to give them everything he can to establish their faith, to answer their questions, to 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 reach uh, into their hearts and lives and to fortify them in their faith. Okay, and that's exactly the heart that we see in Paul when he's writing in First and Second Thessalonians. He has this great concern, but not only that, he has a tremendous encouragement for them. He has a tremendous uh, uh, desire to want to strengthen them and build them up with instruction so that they will be able to stand against the onslaught that Satan brings against them seeking to tear them down and seeking to destroy them. Paul writes to try and encourage them in their faith and commend them and lift them up. And because of, of uh, their unique situation, they are really quite an amazing church. So here they are, these brand new baby Christians left behind in all of this opposition. And yet when Paul writes his letter to them, he has almost no reproof whatsoever the, 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 the body of most of Paul's writings to them is nothing but encouragement and additional instruction. He doesn't write and say, well, you messed this up and you messed, not like writing to the first Corinthians, right? <laughs> you know, and he's not involved in some big controversy where they discredited his name, you know, and he's got to write and defend himself and all of this kind of thing. That doesn't happen in, in Thessalonians. Okay. As we will see. Um, but, uh, but in fact, 
Paul writes the entire first chapter of the letter is just an, a commendation and an encouragement of how well they're actually doing in the faith. Not only that, but because they really are. Okay? These Christians were on fire for Jesus. So much so that they became a sending church. They became a missions-oriented church, and they went out and preached the gospel to the whole region of Macedonia. So much so, they are commended among all the churches as one of these great sending missionary churches. That's what this little fledgling church who was left behind in this opposition with very little practical instruction, that's what they turned out to be. It's a glorious, amazing story of God's grace. Well, with that, I want to talk to you uh, about what the purpose of the letters and the themes that are present in the letters are. So the content of things covered in First and Second Thessalonians is really quite remarkable. Because Paul had spent such little time with them, he writes to give both instruction and encouragement to them. Therefore, his writing is uniquely suited for their difficult situation, being such a young church and facing the difficult task of growing and learning with few mature leaders and persecution from other hostile religious peoples. Therefore, Paul's general purpose was one of encouragement and instruction, but he writes with several themes and topics in view in order to address important matters needed in their theological development. So, you know, when Paul writes back, he's, he has gotten a report from Timothy of what the condition of the church is. Because as we're going to see in the course of the letter, what happens is Paul leaves Berea, goes to Athens. When he gets to Athens, he says, hey, Silas and Timothy, I want you to come to me as soon as you can. As soon as that new church in Berea has everything they need, to stand, I want you to come down here and see me. Well, when they get back and they see Paul, Paul sends Timothy back to Thessalonica, okay, to go and to strengthen the church and to help them. And when Paul gets a report back from Timothy on what actually happened, imagine, see, he's got no news. He doesn't know what happened to the church. He, all, all he knows is he left them behind in an angry mob and he's down the road, man, Right? And here's his heart just bleeding. He's crying out to God. Imagine Paul's prayers for that church for the next 90 days, right? Well, anyway, after Timothy gets up there, uh, does his ministry in the church there, Paul gets word back that is very encouraging. This church is taken off like a rocket, he tells them. Okay? And so, if you will, with that in mind... I'm sure Timothy gives him a list of, except <laughs> they kind of missed this a little bit and they need some help with that and we need to address that. And remember that whole thing where you were going to that big sermon about the second coming of Christ and uh, we didn't quite get to that whole thing about the Antichrist and the Great Tribulation and we they're kind of mixed up on that whole thing. <laughs> so you need to straighten them out, Paul, right? If you will, there were several issues like that that Paul is going to address by way of instruction and say, um, these are the very things that were lacking in their faith. In, in this letter, he includes these topics. Joy, thanksgiving, and encouragement for a healthy new church. The responsibilities of a healthy church, instructions for godly living, and eschatological topics of grave importance. These are the things that are included in the first and second Thessalonian letters. 
And, uh, you know, uh, I didn't know this when I dove off in to study these letters and to teach this class. I did not realize how remarkable this information in these letters really is. Um, but next week, uh, we'll dive off into that. And uh, I want you to just consider how remarkable and how God-ordained that this little arrival of the Apostle Paul in Thessalonica really was. And all the things that have come out of that and what God did in that place at that time with those people, right? Of course, they become the subject of New Testament canon, right? But not only that, the things that are addressed in, the, in this letter, Paul does not address at this level or degree in any of his other letters in, in the whole New Testament. And uh, it is specifically dealing with eschatology and dealing with the second coming of Christ, the end of the world as we know it, right? The culmination of events. Paul gives very explicit and specific instruction about the Antichrist and what will actually happen in his ministry and the things that he does. Um, it is an amazing and an unbelievable set of things that Paul writes about in these letters. And uh, uh, if you will, this is the Pauline eschatology, which only is made by reference a verse here and a verse there in all of the other Pauline letters. There's no other section, okay, in all of the Pauline letters where he deals with eschatology at this depth or this level. <clears throat> he does deal with the resurrection. Excuse me. <clears throat> he does deal with the resurrection, and he does deal with uh, the eternal state of believers and unbelievers in other places, but nowhere does he deal with the events surrounding the 70th week of Daniel and the culminating events of the end, of the end times. Uh, but here he does very clearly, and he gives us very concise instruction, and it's a very profound set of things that are written in these books of Scripture unlike any other book in the history of the world. These books of First and Second Thessalonians have something extremely profound and remarkable recorded in them. And so next week we'll dive off into that and talk about that. Let's pray. <coughs> God, our Father, we, we thank you for this glorious little church that you planted some 2,000 years ago. God, we know as we look at them, they are a model for us. And Lord, my prayer is that as we dive into this word and we learn about these precious, precious Thessalonian Christians, that God, we will learn to follow them even as they follow Jesus. God, that we would be so willing, even as they are, to be publicly maligned for the name of Christ. And that God, even in the midst of that, we would be evangelical that we would be so concerned for people who are lost, that, God, we'd preach the gospel even at, at, at fear of harm. God, we pray that we might be a church that uh, we would receive nothing but commendation from the apostle. We pray, God, that we would learn from these Thessalonian believers how to worship you and glorify you with our whole life. God, that it might be true of us that we love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We thank you for the privilege of being able to meet and to study these glorious words, even the very word of God.
In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.